1: members get early access to most videos and get to participate in monthly zoom hangouts with mike here's the biggest stories we talked about this week on the humanist report enjoy the show
0: so i'm sure that not many of you have heard about this but apparently yesterday the super bowl was taking place i mean they didn't even didn't even know about this so i'm sure it's the same for you Um, And, you know, I usually don't pay attention to sporting events, but the halftime show is something that interests me. If there's any commercials afterwards that are um, entertaining or interesting to me, video game announcement or something, I'll watch it afterwards. Um, And I heard that the uh, halftime show, according to Charlie Kirk, was extremely, extremely problematic. And he is actually saying that something that bad, something that risque, Shouldn't be on television. So here's what he wrote about the halftime show. The NFL is now the league of sexual anarchy. This halftime show should not be allowed on television. So he is explicitly calling for censorship over the halftime show. Now, I just watched the halftime show in preparation for this segment, I didn't tune in live. And I have no idea what he's talking about. The halftime show was incredible, first and foremost. Um, Seeing all of these hip-hop and R&B legends from my teenage years, it brought me pure joy. It made me actually feel happiness, which I didn't think was possible given how cold and dead my heart was. But it was incredible. It, It was just 15 minutes of pure bliss. And I don't understand what in particular he finds so offensive. The sexual anarchy comment makes no sense because at most, we see legs but it wasn't risque, even in the slightest bit. I mean, compared to other halftime shows, I'd argue that those were probably more sexual. But I mean, this is on television, so you just you know that there's not going to be anything too overly sexual. Sure, though, you know, sex sells, so they'll put it in there to an extent. But this halftime show was was not like that. But yet he says that this is essentially sexual anarchy, and it's so bad it shouldn't be allowed on television. What halftime show did you watch, Charlie Kirk? Did we watch the same one? Were you tuning into something different? Because this was not bad at all. In fact, it was incredible. This was an enjoyable experience, but because you are, you know, a pearl-clutching Puritan, you just, you can't enjoy it. You know, you freak out. Oh my God, a leg. We have to ban it. I mean, what a... (laughs) What a fucking dork. Now, you know, you know that he's out of line because even other conservatives chimed in and we're shitting on him. And before we get to the responses, which were hilarious, the internet just shredded him for this, rightfully so, even Candace Owens had the same opinion that I had on this. She writes, this is an excellent Super Bowl halftime performance, undeniable hip hop and R&B excellence. And I never thought that I'd say this, but I agree unequivocally with Candace Owens. We're basically the same age, so we probably grew up on the same music. Um, and yeah, I agree. It Just love it. Hip hop, um, was what I grew up on I saw Snoop Dogg in concert when I was a teenager I love this music every song that they played it gave me like chills down the back of my neck I fucking loved it so much so for him to just not sit back and enjoy it and be the one person perhaps out of everyone watching it who's just sitting there seething and so angry because he spotted a leg shut the fuck up Charlie Kirk you goddamn insufferable prick Um, Now, these moments are really important. Uh, I think that, you know, you might see this story and think that it's not necessarily very substantive and you'd be correct. But these moments are so important because for years now, conservatives have tried to rebrand themselves as the ones who are, you know, they're the more uh, subculture, they're counterculture. They don't like that the left gets too triggered by everything. But here they are clutching their pearls because there were some legs displayed on television. It's just it's truly you have to take these moments and you have to throw it in their face But let's see what the internet said because their response was great. So Anthony Fantano responded saying sexual anarchy sounds good to me. Totally agree. Brian Tyler Cohen googled how old he is and I didn't even uh, realize this but he's only 28 years old. Yet he has the mindset of a 94 year old conservative. I mean David Packman chimes in saying, are you six years old? HD Retrovision uh, shared one of his own pictures, and I don't even know if this is real because so many of these have been memed, but it says, just because you are offended doesn't mean you're right. But, you know, apparently when it comes to Charlie Kirk, if he's offended, then, you know, ban it. I don't like it, ban it. I'm offended. I saw a leg. Uh, don't like that. Gravel Institute chimed in, saying, Conservatives seem to get offended by everything these days. Exactly. Varian Cousins says, Charlie and his wife will not be pushing their beds together for Valentine's Day. (laughs) Even a fellow conservative, Frank Lutz, dogged on him, saying, did someone change the channel on Charlie's TV during the halftime show? Yeah, even conservatives think that Charlie Kirk is being a little bit too ridiculous here and this is supposedly a thought leader for conservatives this is supposed to be the core representative of conservative young people but yet he's clutching his pearls because he saw a little bit uh too much uh skin i, I mean again <laughs> I-, I don't know what the fuck he's talking about it wasn't bad at all it-, it was a great performance and so charlie just shut the fuck up let us have this let us enjoy this if a moment on television is so special that both myself and Candace Owens are in agreement that it was excellent, shut the fuck up. Stop being a little pearl-clutching Puritan. Nobody cares about your opinion. Just keep it to yourself, okay? We're not going to censor this from television because you find it offensive. If you don't like it, change the channel, you goddamn snowflake, so easily triggered. And again, like the thing that's really perplexing to me is that I don't know what triggered him specifically. I, I just, I don't know. Uh, maybe he was just a little bit offended that there were too many black people on the screen. I, I mean, that's obviously speculative. It's a bit of a straw man, of course. He specifically, you know, pointed out the sexual anarchy, but that wasn't there. It, it was not a very sexual thing. So I, I just, I don't know. But for him to get offended at this, I love it. I love this. Save this tweet. If you if you've seen this screenshotted on your phone and whenever conservatives talk about the left being a little bit too easily offended too triggered by things you know they're, they're too censorious throw this tweet in their faces throw this in their faces because this is not anything new right they're just trying to rebrand themselves but Uh, Substantively, conservatives haven't changed over the years. They've always been the Puritans. They've always been the authoritarian little pricks who call for censorship. And because they have that reputation, while they're trying to rebrand the left, you know, students on college campuses as the ones who are too censorious. And sure, it's not like they're perfect as well. The left sometimes does, I think, go a little bit too extreme with regard to their responses to things that they find offensive. We're all human beings, right? Nobody's perfect. But for, you know, this side who has spent lots of money trying to rebrand on marketing uh trying to be the new edgy counterculture and you know they don't care about your feelings fuck your feelings for him to freak out over the super bowl halftime show which was pretty wholesome it's just you love it You, you love to see it you know it's it's a cell phone essentially at this point so charlie kirk shut the fuck up you absolute dweeb just enjoy it okay try to enjoy something try to extract some sort of enjoyment of something in life and maybe you won't be such a miserable bastard. I don't know. So, we've talked about this on the program before, but Donald Trump is trying to further remake the Republican Party in his own image, and now he is going after Republican incumbents specifically who don't explicitly endorse his 2020 big lie. Um, And so, the goal here is to further help him steal the 2024 election in the event he chooses to run, which it seems pretty clear that that is indeed his intent. But by weeding out all of the Republicans who are still being honest about the election, that's unacceptable. He wants them to be unquestionably loyal to him, no conditions whatsoever. And so he's trying to basically drive out anyone who won't feed into his lies. Now, Mitch McConnell is trying to very stealthily thwart this effort from Donald Trump. In fact, he's formed an alliance of sorts with uh, other Republicans, such as War criminal george w bush and what trump is trying to do mitch mcconnell is trying to counter so if donald trump endorses uh, a primary challenger to some republican incumbent then mcconnell is trying to protect said republican incumbent so this is really interesting because this is really becoming a real civil war here which you love to see because so long as the republicans are fighting themselves perhaps they won't be doing as much damage to the country I mean, either way, this is interesting to watch. So this is from Jonathan Martin of The New York Times who explains, As Mr. Trump works to retain his hold on the Republican Party, elevating a slate of friendly candidates in midterm elections, Mr. McConnell and his allies are quietly, desperately maneuvering to try to thwart him. The Loose Alliance, which was once thought of as the GOP establishment for months, has been engaged in a high-stakes candidate recruitment campaign full of phone calls, meetings, polling memos, and promises of millions of dollars. It's all aimed at recapturing the Senate majority. but the The election also represents what could be Republicans' last chance to reverse the spread of Trumpism before it fully consumes their party. Too late. Mr. McConnell for years pushed Mr. Trump's agenda and only rarely opposed him in public, but the message that he delivers privately now is unsparing if debatable. Mr. Trump is losing political altitude and need not be feared in a primary, he has told Mr. Ducey in repeated phone calls, as the Senate leaders' lieutenants share polling data they argue proves it. In conversations with senators and would-be senators, Mr. McConnell is blunt about the damage he believes Mr. Trump has done to the GOP, according to those who have spoken to him. Privately, he has declared he won't let unelectable goofballs win republican primaries Mm, it's a little bit late for that don't you think so um i don't know to what extent this effort is going to be successful i don't buy the line that mitch mcconnell and his ilk are covertly feeding to the press they're basically saying this isn't really about donald trump we're just afraid that he's going to be endorsing candidates that aren't very electable really Um, because if they have the endorsement of Donald Trump and the base still loves Donald Trump, I think that's worth something, no? But what I believe this is truly about, and this is speculation, so, you know, uh, keep that in mind, is I think that, one, Mitch McConnell is trying to make sure that the donors are in control of the Republican Party, not Donald Trump. And second of all, Mitch McConnell is probably just butthurt because Trump is— Pretty explicitly coming after him, Trump has made it very clear that he intends on ousting Mitch McConnell out of his leadership role. And if you are a GOP party donor, you do not want this to happen because Mitch McConnell is very effective at getting their agenda accomplished. So, Mr. Trump has made clear he wants the Senate candidates he backs to oust Mr. McConnell from his leadership perch and even considered making a pledge to do so a condition of his endorsement. Few have done so to date, a fact Mr. McConnell considers a victory. Only two of them have taken me on, he crowed, alluding to Ms. Tishibaka in Alaska and Eric Graytons, the former Missouri governor running for an open seat. Yeah, so I mean, I I think that this is also pretty personal. Trump has made this personal and you know i'm sure that mitch mcconnell is irritated by that and alarmed to an extent given uh, given the political capital that trump has but i do believe that it is the case that trump is kind of wasting a lot of his political capital on this big lie project he just can't get over the 2020 election he can't admit that he lost fair and square and so i think that in some ways you know this will hurt him uh if he just let go of the big lie i think that most people in the republican Party would would be on board. I mean, they're already on board to be clear here, but the holdouts would be on board. But you still have people in the Republican party like Lindsey Graham, who just today on television, you know, after Donald Trump has been attacking him, calling him a rhino, still paying fealty to Donald Trump. So the Republican party, they know that this is a situation that is kind of out of their control at this point. They let the monkeys take over the zoo and now they're living with that, right? They made their bed, now they're lying in it. This is kind of them finding out after fucking around for decades and courting these loons in their party. Um, But you know, this GOP civil war, I think that it is good. Um, Anytime the GOP is at odds with each other, I think that that's objectively good for America given how destructive this party is, not just to this country, but to the planet itself. But you know, the only question is, Who's going to determine the future of the Republican Party? Because there's going to be a winner at some point in this GOP civil war. So will the GOP become an increasingly far right, unhinged authoritarian party that will kill democracy? Or will they become an increasingly unhinged, far right authoritarian party that will kill democracy, uh, but a little bit faster? That's really the question. That's what's going to determine, you know, the outcome of this situation i hope that it's the one that kills democracy a little bit slower so that way we have a bit more of a chance to try to save democracy doesn't really seem like that's going to happen because democrats have just given up but either way i'll still opt for you know a slow move towards uh, authoritarianism. And let me be clear here. I don't want to sound hyperbolic. I'm not saying that we're going to become a dictatorship overnight. I mean, sure, if Donald Trump were to successfully steal an election in this country by getting, uh, you know, electors in Republican-controlled states to thwart the will of voters, that would be awful. But we wouldn't give up the facade of democracy. we just lose even more sway than we already have in this country, and perhaps more civil rights and civil liberties would be restricted. It's kind of a slow, slow death that we'd see, essentially. But I mean, either way, that's bad. I would like to, for once in this country, for once in my lifetime, maybe move in the right direction rather than the wrong direction consistently. Or, you know, we take two steps forward and then five steps back. I would like, for once, to just see a little bit of progression, but this is the United States of America where our democracy is basically dead hanging on by a thread and our institutions are failing us so now we just see utter chaos and a government that is incapable of getting even the minimum done to satisfy the needs of their constituents of the american population as a result it's kind of just like this competition for elites who's gonna win will it be the super super crazy people or the super 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 crazy people you know it's It's a lose-lose, whoever wins, but at the same time, you know, there is a substantive difference between the McConnells and the Trumps of the world. Um, I'd argue that the more establishment type of Republicans, like McConnell, are probably more effective at getting their harmful agenda through. Whereas Donald Trump, even if he's not as effective as a Mitch McConnell or even a DeSantis, his rhetoric, his straight-up disregard for American democracy itself is also harmful. So these are both very, very destructive forces in American politics, and I can only hope that this GOP civil war results in them somehow both losing, but that's not going to be the case. And by the way, since I'm looking at this picture again, this is a very weird image, and it proves, I think, that these are not actual human beings, these are robots. Look at the way that Mitch McConnell is hugging Donald Trump. He's, like, using his fucking decrepit hand to grab onto his arm. Like this is so awkward. Like the they're robots. I feel like this, these are not real human beings. They certainly are soulless at a minimum, but the, they're just weird people, but that's completely beside the point. I just, the picture is just weird. and I had to talk about it a little bit, but anyways, yeah, Mitch McConnell and Donald Trump are fighting and I hope that they fight harder. Let them fight. What's that? Joe Manchin is doing something that's detrimental to American democracy? I'm so surprised. I never would have expected someone like Joe Manchin to do something bad. I feel like he takes all of the news, all of the negative headlines about him as a sort of challenge. And because maybe he's like a contrarian to the core, he sees that when people realize he's bad, he's like, actually, I'm worse than that. Your expectations, all the bad things that you thought about me, I'm actually worse. I mean, I don't know how else to explain it. So his latest shenanigans uh, revolves around the Supreme Court drama that could possibly unfold in the event another Supreme Court vacancy opens up before the midterm elections this year, because he would reportedly not be on board with that, maybe kind of, if the Democratic Party had a chance to take back the Supreme Court. So, as Alexander Bolton of The Hill writes, Joe Manchin tells Manu Raju of CNN and other reporters that if there's another SCOTUS vacancy right before the midterm election, the Senate shouldn't vote on Biden's nominee before the 2023 majority is known. I'm not going to be hypocritical on that, he says. So, let me just put that into perspective for you. If it is the case that his party supposedly has an opportunity to balance the Supreme Court and take it from a far right supermajority to just A regular far-right majority, he's like, "Mm, no, we're not going to do that. Not before this election. No way. I'm very principled. Yes, we all know Joe Manchin as being a a perfectly consistent, principled politician. I mean, if we're talking about his self-serving politics and corruption, then sure, there's consistency there. But when it comes to policy or priorities in Congress, he's not consistent at all. Not even close. Back in uh, January of 2021, after Joe Biden was sworn in, it was him that called for $4 trillion in infrastructure spending. And then when Democrats proposed an infrastructure bill, he cuts it in half and then a fourth and then just kills... Build Back Better, which was part of their human infrastructure effort. So where is this posturing even coming from? But apparently he wanted to clarify his statement so he didn't seem too unreasonable because I mean, Joe Manchin is definitely reasonable. So Manu Raju tweets, Manchin later says he quote misspoke and was referring to a confirmation vote right before a week or two of presidential election. Okay, not midterm election. Initial question was about midterm election. (laughs) hmm Sure. Totally believable. Now the reason why he likely had to make this clarification or, or state that he misspoke is because he wants to at least uphold this facade a little bit that he is a Democrat. It really gives him a lot of power, disproportional sway over everything in the Senate. He's really the deal maker currently, right? Him and Kirsten Cinema. But, you know, if he were to be a Republican, then all of his power kind of just diminishes to an extent. Perhaps he can pretend to be Elisa Murkowski or Susan Collins where he agonizes over a certain policy and then ultimately votes with Republicans. That's usually what he does anyways. But he likes being in this position. So he wanted to make it seem as if, oh, no, 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 I'm talking about a presidential election. And when you said midterms, I heard presidential election. Because if he actually abides by this logic, if he really went with what he said earlier, He's quite literally just doing the bidding of the Republican Party because let me remind you what happened on October 6th of 2018, a midterm election year. He voted for the Republican Party's Supreme Court nominee, Brett Kavanaugh. The New York Times reports, Judge Brett M. Kavanaugh was confirmed to the Supreme Court on Saturday by one of the slimmest margins in American history, locking in a solid conservative majority on the court and capping a rancorous battle that began as a debate over judicial ideology and concluded with a national reckoning over sexual misconduct. As a chorus of women in the Senate's public galleries repeatedly interrupted the proceedings with cries of shame, somber-looking senators voted 50 to 48 almost entirely along party lines to elevate Judge Kavanaugh. result was expected. All senators had announced their intentions by Friday. Senator Joe Manchin, the third of West Virginia, was the lone Democrat to support Judge Kavanaugh. So yeah, Joe Manchin voted to confirm a far-right Supreme Court justice one month before the 2018 election. And this wasn't just any far-right Supreme Court justice. This was somebody who was very credibly accused of rape. So I mean I I don't I don't even know why he said what he said. He clearly walked it back because he's anticipating more backlash. Even though I feel like he likes the backlash, I think he just wants to give himself some plausible deniability, right? Maybe he wants to see uh, or seem as if he's perfectly equal, you know, right in the middle of Democrats and Republicans. Okay, I confirmed the Republicans, um, you know, SCOTUS nominee during an election year, and now I am confirming. A democratic party's nominee during an election year uh but no more than one just just one only if it's two then no i'm I'm pulling the brakes right there i i I just i don't understand what the point of all of this is then and you really wouldn't help as a democrat you wouldn't help your own party get a little bit more sway over the supreme court it's 6-3 right now so you wouldn't try to at least give them 5-4 And keep in mind that whenever he talks about bipartisanship, this is really asymmetric bipartisanship. What he means in actuality is bipartisanship so long as it benefits the Republican Party. Because when he talks about bipartisanship, usually it's within the context of I'm going to obstruct the Democratic Party's agenda. Because back in 2018, going back to Brett Kavanaugh, it was a great example of him kind of proving that he's a fraud. Because what was he saying? What was one of the excuses that he used to kill build back better aside from you know budgetary issues and fiscal you know um, austerity bullshit um he was saying well look i can't support something that is just too partisan he said this about voting rights i believe he said you know there's no republicans on board so i want to construct legislation that will at least get some republicans well wait a second you voted to confirm brett kavanaugh a very partisan judge to the supreme court back in 2018. Why didn't you block Republicans back then? Why didn't you say, you know what, I support Kavanaugh personally, but I think that the Republican Party needs to nominate someone a little bit more moderate to kind of, you know, shore up bipartisan support, because currently this is a justice that's just too partisan and I can't go along with it. Why didn't he say that back then? Why does he only invoke the bipartisan card when it comes to the the Democratic Party's agenda? It's because... He's just the Republican with a D in front of his name. The D in front of his name is only there still because it really serves his power politics. He loves being the one who kind of holds all the cards. He loves having Democrats grovel at his feet. It makes him feel important and makes him feel powerful. He loves this. But in actuality, he is functionally a Republican. There is no meaningful difference between him and a moderate Republican. The difference between him and Lisa Murkowski is, is essentially non-existent so david remnick of the new yorker sat down for a relatively lengthy interview with representative alexandria ocasio-cortez and this was really fascinating. There were a lot of moments in this interview that I found uh, very, very interesting. And we're going to primarily be focusing on what she said with respect to American democracy and how it's in danger because she is characterizing this in a way that I've seen few lawmakers characterize it in. Like She actually outlines how dire the situation is currently when it comes to American democracy and how it's hanging on by a thread. And it might not be here much longer. Like we're talking in our lifetimes, in the near future, we might see the total collapse of democracy. And I think that, you know, we have to phrase it like that in no uncertain terms. We have to make it very clear to people, wake up, democracy is dying. I don't even think that most liberals and leftists even have come to terms with the reality of democracy in the United States being completely eradicated in this country i mean it's going to be a slower burn right it's not just going to collapse all at once but we're treading into very dangerous and treacherous territory and what we need are for people to wake up and that's kind of what aoc is seemingly trying to do here in this interview but there are other moments that that are worth reading as well, which is why I'll link to it down below. She criticizes Joe Biden. She calls Congress a shit show. She discusses issues with the Democratic Party's leadership. But I mean, she very clearly pulls punches when it comes to Nancy Pelosi and David Remnick actually pointed that out. It was pretty interesting. She also addressed the prospect of her leaving Congress. And that was really interesting to hear, you know, what she had to say about what she might be doing in the future. Really interesting. But overall, we're going to focus on her comments about democracy because this is very important. So she was asked, you've used the phrase IF we have a democracy 10 years from now. Do you think we won't? And she responds by saying, I think there's a very real risk that we will not. What we risk is having a government that perhaps postures as a democracy and may try to pretend that it is but isn't. David asks, what's going to bring us to that point? You hear talk now about our being on the brink of a civil war. That's the latest phrase in a series of books that have come out. What will happen to bring us to that degraded point? She responds saying, well, I think it has started, but it's not beyond hope. We're never beyond hope. But we've already seen the opening salvos of this, where you have a very targeted, specific attack on the right to vote across the United States, particularly in areas where Republican power is threatened by changing electorates and demographics. You have white nationalist reactionary politics starting to grow into a critical mass. What we have is the continued, sophisticated takeover of our democratic systems in order to turn them into undemocratic systems, all in order to overturn results that a party in power may not like. David asks, The concern is that we will look like what other nation? She says... I think we will look like ourselves. I think we will return to Jim Crow. I think that's what we risk. He follows up saying what's the scenario for that? She says you have it already happening in Texas where Jim Crow style disenfranchisement laws have already been proposed. You had members of the state legislature just a few months ago flee the state in order to prevent such voting laws from being passed. In Florida where you had the entire state vote to allow people who were released from prison to be re-enfranchised after they have served their debt to society, that's essentially being replaced with poll taxes and intimidation at the polls, you have the complete erasure and attack on our own understanding of history to replace teaching history with institutionalized propaganda from white nationalist perspectives in our schools. This is what the scaffolding of Jim Crow was. So there are many impulses to compare this to somewhere else. There are certainly plenty of comparisons to make with the rise of fascism in post-World War I Germany, but you really don't have to look much further than our own history because what we have, I think, is a uniquely complex path that we have walked and the question question that we're really facing is, was the last 50 to 60 years after the Civil Rights Act just the mere flirtation that the United States had with a multiracial democracy that we will then decide was inconvenient for those in power? And we will revert to what we had before, which, by the way, wasn't just Jim Crow, but also the extraordinary economic oppression as well. Now what she says is really interesting. The way that she frames this is, I think, important because she's correct here. I think that people kind of chalk up concerns over democracy to hyperbole because they visualize these authoritarian regimes like North Korea, you know, or even China perhaps to a lesser extent where you see censorship with respect to pop culture and criticisms of the government. And sure, that's possible, but really what she's saying here is important because reverting back to disenfranchising of, you know, black and brown people, the Jim Crow era, that really is the more likely scenario sure i think we will see in the event we continue down this path you know deterioration of civil rights and civil liberties so we could see more censorship of you know criticism if we have this authoritarian demagogue like donald trump who very clearly didn't like that the media was criticizing him and talked about opening up libel laws you know we could see a situation where censorship is more rampant in the United States, where criticizing the government actually comes at a cost. But I think that the most likely scenario, in the event we do see further destruction of our democracy and it doesn't get changed or addressed by Democrats, is this Jim Crow era kind of returning. It's not going to be identical to the Jim Crow of the past, but it's going to be very similar, and the playbook that was used then will be used now. It's just a modern version of Jim Crow, which is horrifying to think about. But again, let me link you to an article down below about what's happening in Texas after they passed their Jim Crow 2.0 law, where voters are already being disenfranchised and voting is becoming increasingly difficult in these GOP controlled states. So it's really important. Now, she addresses Republicans and whether or not they share the same concern for democracy. And I think that to a large extent they do but their concern for democracy is a little bit different but let me tell you what she says first She was asked, do you think many Republicans share your concern about the fate of democracy? Do you have those kinds of conversations? She says, it's a complex question because there's so many different kinds of Republicans, but I'm reluctant to get into the navel-gazing of it because at the end of the day, they all make the same decisions. You might be able to appeal to the good natures or even a sense of charity of a handful, but ultimately, we have what we have. At the end of the day, you know, who cares if they're true believers or if they're just complicit? They're still voting to overturn the results of our election. Remnick asks, we're constantly told if you could only hear what's being said in the cloakrooms a lot of republicans find donald trump repulsive but know that they're going to lose their seats if they say so is being in congress such a great job that you will trade your principles and soul for that job aoc responds by saying what i think some republicans struggle with the very few that are in that position is a concern that they will be replaced by someone even worse you know okay externally i might look like a good soldier i might look like i'm falling in line but if i lose my primary and i get replaced with 10 more marjorie taylor greens we'll be in an even worse situation that's perhaps where they may be coming from and to a certain extent You do have these critical moments. You have January 6th, and if Mike Pence had made a different split-second decision that day and done what President Trump was asking him, we would be in a very different place right now. So I actually disagree with what she's saying here. I think that she's giving Republicans too much credit. She's referring specifically to these Republicans who will publicly pay fealty to Trump, but privately try to combat his influence within the party. I mean, she points out that that is indeed a a distinction without a difference. But I don't think that they care. I don't think that what's keeping them there is this idea that they'll be replaced by more Marjorie Greens. I don't think that they give a shit. So I think that they like being in this advantageous position to where they get insider insight into what's going to be happening, which helps them with regard to, you know, trading stocks and what have you. On top of that, you know, they like the influence that they have being in power, setting themselves up for a future career as a lobbyist or a leader of an industry that they're regulating currently. I mean, they don't care. They don't care about anything, right? They know that climate change is real, but yet... They watch as we destroy our planet entirely, and they let the fossil fuel contributions roll in. They know that vaccines are safe and effective, but yet they pretend as if vaccines are bad because that's what the base wants. So there's no limits. There's nothing, you know, that is going to make them wake up and say, okay, enough is enough. Because if that were the case, they would have already done it. So I think she's way too kind to them. You know, sure, there's a difference between the Marjorie Greens of the world and the Adam Kinsingers of the world, but I mean, it's... Two different butt cheeks on the same ass. It's it's the same it's the same thing. It doesn't matter at the end of the day. They're both against democracy. They both, you know, govern in a way, and I use the word "govern" charitably, that is detrimental to the health and long term survival of our democracy. It's just that one is accelerating the decline of democracy, whereas the others are, are, aren't are doing it as fast, but still doing it. And when it comes to the GOP overall, like with respect to their base and whether or not they're concerned with democracy, um, I, I think that there's this contradiction that they're currently fighting because on one hand, you have GOP voters who are concerned with democracy because they were told that the 2020 election has been stolen. So in their heart of hearts, because they're deluded, they think that, oh, Democracy was subverted, so I care about democracy. That's why I'm siding with Donald Trump. That's why I'm fighting Democrats. But on the other hand, they support Trump so deeply and believe communism or socialism is such a huge threat that an authoritarian dictator like Donald Trump, maybe, you know, if he's perpetually in power with unlimited legal authority, perhaps that's the only way to stop this communist threat. I mean, there are people with this mentality and they vocalize this at rallies when interviewers, you know, talk to them. So, perhaps they view extra-democratic methods as a way of ultimately saving democracy long-term. I'm not sure. Either way, GOP and their base is absolutely one of the main drivers of democratic decline in the United States. Now, to be clear, um, that's one thing that I wish that AOC would have been more explicit about saying, but still what she's saying here and laying this out is important. Uh, But, you know, another thing that's important to note is that Democrats, yes, they are also culpable here. They are indirectly responsible for the decline of democracy because they're not fighting uh, Republicans enough, rather. And on top of that, you know, they're not doing things to address what makes people so desperate You know, uh, that desperation makes them more susceptible to radicalization, makes them more likely to fall for a demagogue like Donald Trump. So, yes, Democrats are complicit. But what somebody in D.C. needs to say is that the Republican Party is a threat to democracy. Full stop. And they're not just the threat to American democracy. They're a threat to the planet. Because as complicit as Democrats may be, as little as Democratic Party officials care about climate change and democracy, it's still Republicans are demonstrably accelerating the demise of democracy and life on earth period so you know it needs to be laid out like that in no uncertain terms and people need to understand what we could be facing in the next five to ten years a full decline of democracy it's not like it's impossible i think that people by and large still trust American institutions enough and believe that they'll protect us from an authoritarian strongman like Donald Trump or Ron DeSantis. But it's time to wake up. I had that belief too. But the institutions are failing. And when institutions that protect democracy fail, democracy fails. They're kind of, you know, the stopgap between democracy and authoritarianism. So I'm glad that she's laying it out you know, in this way, because I don't think people really understand how dire the situation is. So to have more lawmakers put it pretty bluntly that, yeah, democracy could be gone in like 10 years. I think that's important. And the way that she explained it is really, really necessary, because I think that people just think what you think you're going to we're going to be like North Korea when no, nobody's positing that we're going to turn into an, a, you know, a totalitarian regime, what we're likely witnessing is the prospect of illiberal democracy, where we're a fake democracy, essentially, where we have, you know, the the facade of democracy, and we have some civil liberties and some civil rights, but by and large, we don't really have much sway over our government, and we don't already, but like, much worse than, than currently. So, yeah, really bleak shit, but it needs to be said. People need to be given this hard truth. So corrupt conservative Democrat Henry Cuellar is facing a tough primary challenge against progressive Jessica Cisneros. Now, if you live in Texas, early voting just kicked off on Monday, so make sure that you support her. She came this close to beating Henry Cuellar back in 2020, but this time with him being raided by the FBI and with her seeing a surge of momentum and support, Odds are, she can actually pull this off, and she's someone who actually cares about policies, whereas Henry Cuellar is a conservative Democrat who voted with Trump most of the time, and he also doesn't even support abortion rights. So I don't even know why he is in the Democratic Party. Nonetheless, this is really the opportunity to oust him from power. But what's interesting is that um, all of a sudden as of February there's been a suspicious amount of new supporters who are very enthusiastic about this member of Congress who's been there since 2005. And what Ryan Grimm and Sarah Sirota of The Intercept found out is that it looks like he has deployed an army of bots. So they explain, just this month, for instance, a young woman named Elia Isabella opened a Twitter account and began sharing her appreciation for Quayar. A pride, all my support, and I hope he stays in the Congress, she said Monday, apparently so eager to post that she didn't have time to consider her unusual grammar. Her dedication to Quayar is so complete that her entire online activity consists of retweeting Quayar and replying positively to Posts. We'll look at this in a second. Isabella quickly found a community of Quayar supporters. She follows 64 people and has six followers, and nearly all of them share her breathless enthusiasm. Takes Selena Stefani, who has exclusively posted messages praising the representative since opening an account in January. Thanks for always caring, reads one. Hopefully achieve great things for Texas, says another. Like the bulk of Quayar's newfound supporters, Stefani's last name is capitalized, but the last is lowercase interesting. A number of Cuellar's groupies inundated a tweet from Webb County Democratic Party announcing that early primary voting had begun Monday. El futuro de Texas está en manos de Henry, replied Gabrielle Clark with two clapping emojis. With Henry until the end, wrote Jackie Murphy, with a strong arm. The support with Henry is honest. He is a hardworking and prepared man, said Lulu Carey. Henry is a great example. My vote is for he, (laughs) <laughs> added John MacLeod, all happened to join Twitter last month and exclusively engage with content about Cuellar or narrows Now, I just want to pause right there. The dead giveaway is the fact that none of these accounts capitalized their last names, and the grammar is all terrible. It's almost like these aren't real human beings. Now, let's look at some of these accounts. They're, they're so conspicuous, so obvious that you'd think that he'd at least be somewhat embarrassed, but I mean, these politicians are shameless. So let's look at that first account, Elia Isabella. So as you can see, didn't capitalize their last name, just started their account in February, as the article explains, and literally every single post is, uh, you guessed it, about Henry Cuellar, and the very first post is a retweet of Henry Cuellar. So it's almost like this account was created specifically to boost Henry Cuellar or something. I mean, they must just really have realized that this February, how enthusiastic they are about this member of Congress who's been there since 2005. Interesting. We also have Selena Stephanie with roughly the same amount of followers and who's following about the same amount of people as Elia Isabella and conspicuously only replying to Henry Cuellar's posts, with the very first reply being posted in February saying all trust. Very natural here. And then we have Jackie Murphy, also a newer account created in January saying uh, they're not convinced by Jessica Cisneros and she doesn't have what it takes, but they very clearly think that Henry Cuellar has what it takes considering that the replies to his tweets make up the totality of their Twitter activity. And I love how the first post is, I think you could be of great help to Texas as if he's some new up-and-comer and hasn't been in Congress since fucking five, It's just hilarious to me. I love this. So, it's very obvious that these are not real accounts, and people have pointed this out prior to this article being written. Uh, it's just, this is, this is nonsense. This is astroturf online. Um, now, there's one more account that I want to show you. You're going to want to stick around for this one because this one is certainly a little out there, and I have no idea where this account came from. Uh, but I just want to kind of go back to what his account was like prior to all of these bots increasing his engagement on Twitter. So Cuellar hasn't always been such a phenom on Twitter. Take his November 5th tweet announcing passage of the bipartisan infrastructure bill, which he had worked to break away from the larger Build Back Better Act. Absent was his swarm of supporters. Instead, his followers took the opportunity to lambast him for undermining the broader package, to call him a sellout, or otherwise denigrate his legislative activity. It's fortunate for Cuellar to have won over such committed backers so late in the Game, especially after an FBI raid of his home and campaign office in January, tied to an ongoing investigation into Azerbaijani influence peddling, led to a drop in the polls. Many of the rest of the replies to his posts, coming from accounts that have been active much longer and have more diverse interests than just Quayar, are criticisms of his anti abortion stance, references to the federal investigation, or calls of support for Cisneros. But oddly enough, none of the new accounts seem to actually follow their hero. So that is very 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 interesting very interesting now there's one more account that I want to uh, kind of highlight here this wasn't addressed in the article, but this was an account that I happened to stumble across as I was doing research for this video. Um, So this account here, uh, the user futbucker 69 has a Henry Cuellar avatar with heart emojis and their bio reads, I happen to be a newly enthusiastic fan of representative Henry Cuellar as of February. Now as you can see, like the other posts, all of their activity are replies to uh, Henry Cuellar. They say thank you for all you do boy really hope you don't go to prison so very enthusiastically supporting him and then the first uh response here which is the first uh post made on this account reads thank much who needs the hen Eight? aid deaf me so this futbucker 69 account is very interesting to me and i don't know why henry cuellar would deploy bots like this really henry futbucker 69 you're a member of congress and you have these fake accounts asking uh you to eat their hen russi or asking who needs a hen russi ate to be to be clear so i have no idea where this account came from and it you know he should really come out and denounce this and say he doesn't stand for this this hen russi. like that's so inappropriate so he needs to denounce this i mean bot accounts once you start deploying them it's it's kind of a you know you open the floodgates and any accounts can purport support for someone like Henry Cuellar. So he really shouldn't do things like this. And other politicians shouldn't do things like this as well, because you might see a Six 69 pop up and all of a sudden support you. And it doesn't seem like that's somebody who you would want to have the support of as a politician. So... Um, Yeah, it's very clearly a bot account, but this is his bot account, I'm assuming. I don't know where this account came from. I have nothing to do with it, but this is clearly something that he created. So, I mean, he should disavow all of these bot accounts and stop trying to do online astroturf because it's just embarrassing. But uh, that's all I have to say about this. He was caught and it seems like he wanted to get caught because, you know, with this many bot accounts, all specifically dedicated to replying to you... It's just a matter of time before, you know, uh, internet sleuths are going to uncover that this is a huge AstroTurf campaign to create enthusiasm where it doesn't exist. And it's just, it's pathetic and I hope it doesn't work for him. I don't think this is going to work for him because bots aren't going to translate into votes, but I hope that in the end he loses and Jessica Cisneros prevails victorious. But we'll wait and see if you live in Texas, if you live in this district, Support Jessica Cisneros, vote for Jessica Cisneros because guess what? She actually doesn't need bots because the enthusiasm for her campaign is actually real, something that a corporate corrupt Democrat like Henry Cuellar would never be able to get organically. So, yeah, support Jessica Cisneros, I will be rooting for her. Well, the media and political establishment in this country, unsurprisingly, is still horny for war with Russia. But nobody in this country gets their rocks off more at the thought of death and destruction than Republican psychopath Lindsey Graham, who on national television said what they're all probably thinking in D.C. What do you make of this
1: overall strategy we're seeing from the administration releasing this intelligence about possible invasions, saying imminent invasions, saying maybe there'll be a false flag operation? You think that maybe has been effective in pushing Putin back?
2: I don't know, that's a really good question. I don't wanna ring alarm bell as much as take action. They're telling us the invasion is imminent, but they're not telling Putin with with, uh, clarity what happens if you invade. He should be punished now. What I can't get over is that the world is allowing him to do all this without consequence. The guy took the Crimea in 2014. He's got 100,000 troops amassed on the Ukrainian border and he's paying no price at all. So I'd like to hit him now for the provocation and have sanctions spelled out very clearly what happens to the ruple in his oil and gas economy. I think that's what's missing. We're talking way too much and we're doing too little.
1: Well, let's see what happens this week, Senator. Meantime, I do want to ask you, it's been several years since you've been on the program. So this is our first chance since the January 6th riots to ask about your relationship with President Trump and his leadership of the Republican Party.
0: Isn't it interesting how George Stephanopoulos just moved on, didn't ask for clarification? You know, if I were in that position, I would push him to clarify what he means. Senator, you said hit him now for the provocation. What do you mean by that specifically? You cited sanctions, so are you saying that we do sanctions now before he invades Ukraine and then we make it very clear that we'll go to war with him if he does indeed invade? What are you saying? Because you're talking about this very flippantly when this is a serious issue and you are in a position of power. So what you say currently, it makes a difference, and yet you're just casually talking about us needing to do less talk and more action. I mean, our media is so... Conditioned to support war, support whatever the State Department says and wants, that these things don't even register. It sounded like a United States senator just called for war with Russia, not necessarily explicitly, but he hinted at it. He wants more aggression. So, how do you just move on to the next question after that? Lindsey Graham said, They're telling us the invasion is imminent, but they're not telling Putin with clarity, them being the State Department and the Biden administration, uh, what happens if you invade. He should be punished. Now. He should be punished now for the provocation. Okay, let me let me just ask this question to anyone in the establishment. Yes, it is the case that Putin and Russia, they are amassing troops on the border of Ukraine. But this is not new. It's not a new phenomenon. So why is it that this time It's a little bit more than geopolitical posturing, which is common globally speaking. I mean, when it comes to the United States and South Korea, whenever North Korea does regular nuclear weapons tests, we respond by doing war games near their border. We casually fly into Iranian airspace, allegedly, but then when Iran shoots down our drone, because they likely see that as an act of aggression, well, we denied that we invaded their airspace in the first place, and then we subsequently accuse them of increasing aggression. So, I mean, a huge portion of international politics is theatric, and when Ukraine tells us that they're not fearing an imminent invasion from Russia, forgive me for being a little bit skeptical considering our government has lied to us before with respect to the question as to whether or not another country poses a threat. By the way, we never found those WMDs in Iraq, and yet we're still in Iraq till this day. So I'm sorry, I'm gonna need more than the State Department's word that another country is planning to do something, because that hasn't gone very well for us in the past when we just took the U.S. government at their word. So, Explain to us why should we believe that the troop buildup this time is different than previous years when Russia put troops on the border? How is this not just more posturing? Why is it necessary that we escalate tensions currently? Now, to be fair, not everyone is trying to escalate. The Biden administration has kind of walked a fine line. They've been escalating tensions, making threats, but at the same time, they are having talks with Russia and Vladimir Putin, which is important. But the problem that I have with the mainstream media and our political establishment is that whenever we see this posturing from other countries, whenever they puff up their chests and they are aggressive, which is bad, by the way, to be clear, Russia doing that is bad. But, you know, we have to take that as a threat. But when we do it, when we posture, when we play war games near another country, That's not a threat. That's not evidence of imminent invasion, because we're always the good guys. So, you know, when I see this, my response is, why do we have to immediately resort to escalation? Why isn't the media all in unison calling for diplomacy, calling for peace? I mean, the implication whenever there's a situation like this is— we have to invade and if it's not because a country poses a threat then the media will try to pull on your heartstrings and say well it's a humanitarian crisis and we can't stand idly by while this happens meanwhile you know there is no war for purposes of humanitarian reasons there's always some underlying motivating factor usually it's what the you know military industrial complex wants which is essentially a semi-autonomous entity in our government currently So, when we live in a late-stage capitalist society where war is profitable, I'm sorry, I don't buy anything you say. Show me evidence that this is actually serious this time because Ukraine, they're saying, we're not worried about an imminent invasion. Now, you know, what's interesting is that after Lindsey Graham made that appearance, we learned that if we did take him at his word and we did what he said, well, we would have escalated further because guess what? Russia is withdrawing troops. So in the event we listened to Lindsey Graham and we hit Putin, did sanctions preemptively, we would have escalated. Do you understand why it's really important that we don't always have our finger on the trigger whenever something happens, whenever another country is posturing? And look, I don't like any imperialism. Don't support U.S. imperialism. Don't support Russian imperialism. You know, what they do in their geopolitical region, essentially, it's intimidation. They're terrorizing these other countries, and that's awful. That's bad. Them building up troops is bad, Escalation, however, is also bad. The best response to aggression isn't always more aggression. Sometimes you approach it differently, diplomatically, or using soft power, not by just screeching at the top of your lungs for war, Lindsey Graham. So, I mean, if people like Lindsey Graham are so horny for war, if you want to be a little tough guy, go enlist. Go pick up a fucking gun and go to Ukraine, Lindsey Graham. See, it's easy for him to call for other people to fight and die when he's sitting in his mansion somewhere in D.C. when he's just hanging out, doesn't really have to be bothered by it. Yeah, yeah, we should be tough. Okay, you be tough. Go to Russia or go to Ukraine. Go fight. You want to send other people to die? Not so easy if you're the one who's going to be on the front lines, Lindsey Graham. Now, Sam Sachs made an excellent point about this on Twitter. He said, I'm sorry, but I just can't buy the claim that Putin was about to start a generational war that would have come at great cost to his nation and likely toppled his government because he's a suicidal nut, but decided not to do it at the last second because the United States said don't. This isn't to let Russia off the hook for the shit it's been doing in Ukraine since 2014 and the recent show of force, but no one ever made a good argument for how Russia benefits from a disaster war and instead just ran with the State Department's caricature that Putin is a madman. I think the more interesting question is, did the U.S. State Department actually believe Putin would start an incredibly reckless war of regime change and occupation in Ukraine? Did it really think that? And if not, then what game has it been playing the last few weeks and months? Exactly. Sorry, but after you lied to your entire country about Iraq having weapons of mass destruction, we never trust you ever again. What's the saying? Fool me once, shame on me. Uh, what's the second part? W, can you help me out?
3: There's an old saying in Tennessee, I know it's in Texas, probably in Tennessee, that says fool me once, shame on, shame on you. It fool me,
0: we can't get fooled again. That's right, can't get fooled again. So, no i am not just going to instinctively opt for more aggression and escalation whenever we see other countries doing posturing that is very common globally that's bad russia putting troops on the border in ukraine is obviously intimidation but when we see this posturing back and forth between countries usually it's one responding to the other one going tit for tat and it's all bad really what we should be doing is working with every single country to stop the real threat, which is anthropogenic climate change. But all of these leaders around the globe, everyone, they have their heads up their asses, and they're so primitive that they think that war is really the best interest for everyone. And these geopolitical pursuits are the best things for their country. Imperialism is the best thing when, you know, imperialism, you know, uh, all this shit doesn't matter if we don't have a habitable planet. So maybe they should focus on that, but of course not, because that would mean that we live in a sane world if that were the case, but we live in an insane world. So leaders are, you know, very thirsty for war. We have a late-stage capitalist society where war is profitable, so our media apparatus and political establishment push for it at the behest of their defense contractor donors and advertisers, and this is why whenever we see a flare-up with Iran, with, uh, Russia, Venezuela, there's always this fear that, oh, my God, will this be the time when they invade again? Sorry, you're going to have to provide me with more evidence. And even if you prove to me that another country is a threat, then you're going to have to give us a very good justification as to why all out war is necessary. So the fourth anniversary of the Parkland school shooting actually just passed and parkland survivors as well as the families and parents of victims are speaking out because they haven't seen the action that was promised to them by joe biden on the campaign trail now in an interview with cnn david hogg among others were talking about the specific things that biden can do by himself without abolishing the filibuster that he has yet to do. And they just launched a website called Shock Market, which basically tracks every single gun death that took place since Biden has taken office. So they're trying to exert pressure on him. And this is really important here because it shows you that there are very small, almost insignificant seemingly things that Biden can do and he won't even do the bare minimum. So watch as David Hogg breaks it down here. Um, I think one of the things that I've thought about in this time is one of the first interviews that I had in the wake of the shooting, which was actually, I believe, on this show uh, just about four years ago. And on that, one of the things that I remember most distinctly from that uh, in the time since watching it is when I said I was asked by the reporter, you know, what do you want to say to politicians? And I said, we're the kids, you're the adults, you need to do something. It's four years later and i'm 21 years old and i'm an adult we need to do something and frankly president biden needs to do something because there are certain things that he's leaving on the table that he can do right now like creating a national office of gun violence prevention and a national director of gun violence prevention and creating a comprehensive plan to dramatically reduce gun deaths before the state of the union that he can do right now regardless of the filibuster and regardless of what's going on in the senate
3: so igor why isn't that happening do you think
0: I don't know you have to
2: ask the president you have to ask this administration because as you know they ran one of the most comprehensive plans to reduce gun violence president Biden made personal promises to Patricia to Manuel to David that this would be a top priority for him and the fact that they haven't done everything and anything in their power is unacceptable absolutely
0: unacceptable so I feel like David Hogg is being extremely reasonable here. He knows that there are limitations to what you can accomplish via executive power, but what he's asking for, this is incredibly reasonable, almost too reasonable in my opinion. He wants to create a national office for gun violence prevention along with a director for gun violence prevention, and he wants a comprehensive plan as to how Biden's administration can reduce gun deaths. A plan and an office. That's it. I'd argue that those asks are essentially lip service. But what's crazy is Biden won't even do that. He won't even do the bare minimum. Of course, he hasn't been pushing for legislation because, you know, he's not strong enough to stand up to people in his own party who refuse to abolish the filibuster. Um, But he won't even do what he can do with his pen. And that's a problem. Now, Cam Kasky was even more explicit. Another Parkland survivor who didn't mince words. He's really frustrated with Joe Biden. He wrote on Twitter, Four years ago today, when I was hiding in a packed classroom, wondering if the next person coming through the door would shoot us all, I genuinely thought to myself that if Donald Trump wasn't president, we'd be able to fix all this. Learned my lesson. Biden's not doing it either. So this is a giant betrayal. Trump was president when the Parkland shooting happened. And Democrats at least paid lip service to the idea that they were going to take action. And now, when they have power, I mean, they're not even doing the bare minimum. All that they're asking for is an office of gun prevention and a director for that position. That's nothing. And a plan. And they're not even getting that. I mean, how could you not see why they're frustrated? But of course, liberals actually attacked Cam Kasky because he dared to criticize the Democratic Party. And the implication is that if you criticize Joe Biden, then by default, you're essentially tacitly endorsing the Republican Party. But his response to this was just perfect. So he tweeted out, Biden fans when I criticize the administration. He's just trying to make the GOP look good. Literally Joe Biden last week. Mitch McConnell is a man of honor. Yeah. Checkmate liberals. Unironically so. I mean, it's just ridiculous to think that it's not acceptable for anyone to criticize Joe Biden because the GOP is so bad. I mean, you're letting them off the hook when these are easy things that Biden can do. At what point do loyalists within the Democratic Party ever put the burden on the Democratic Party? At what point do they say, you know what? Maybe they're failing us. Maybe it's not that young people are failing them. Maybe the Democratic Party establishment and their leadership is failing us. But that'll never be the case. Um, Now, Kam Kasky was interviewed by Mehdi Hassan on MSNBC, and he kind of further elaborated about why he and his generation entirely are just disillusioned by the Biden administration.
1: Last week, President Biden was talking tough about the Second Amendment. Have a listen.
3: There's no amendment that's absolute when the amendment was passed, it didn't say anybody can own a gun and any kind of gun and any kind of weapon. You couldn't buy a cannon and when the, this, this uh, amendment was passed. And so no reason why you should be able to buy certain assault weapons. But- now, Biden was scorched by the pro-gun right for
1: those comments. Uh, but although he's been painted as a gun grabber on the right, as you point out, there's been no major movement on major gun reform. There was a bill passed in the House. It died in the Senate like every other bill. I wonder what are, you know, you said we were young four years ago. You're still young, Cameron. What are young people feeling when they put a lot of their energy into getting Democrats to the White House, a majority in both chambers of Congress, even if narrow in the Senate, but you don't get crucial issues like gun control out of it? How do you keep motivating people to keep voting?
4: Well, it's crazy because it's not only us not getting the major sweeping reform that not only young people, but people across the board want. Uh, we're not getting the basic stuff. We're not getting Biden's campaign promises that can't be stopped in the Senate. You know, we're, we're not getting the national director of gun violence prevention that he said he would appoint on the campaign. Which you, you can't blame Cinema and Manchin on that one. And I love blaming Cinema no, and
1: stuff. stuff
4: They are. The, I, I love talking about how they how they ruin everything. But Biden can do that with a stroke of a pen. So, look, beyond gun control measures, he made a lot of promises about student student loan debt and then came out and treated it like the people who need help with their student loans are a bunch of rich kids going to Princeton uh, from wealthy families, right? But Biden is making no friends in my generation. And mind you, the concept of anyone in my generation supporting a conservative is completely absurd to me, but Biden's not— Biden's not doing anything to win young people over, and we're tired. We're uh, quite, quite jaded, quite cynical. And look, I'm gonna keep on voting blue, but I mean, it's getting less fun every time.
0: So basically, between millennials and Gen Z, the Democratic Party has fucked up so bad, performed so poorly, failed on so many different levels that they've basically blackpilled two different generations my generation, millennials, we were black-pilled when we enthusiastically supported Obama and he did fuck all to change the country when he got into office, even after he explicitly ran on hope and change. And then we have Biden and the current iteration of the Democratic Party just basically giving Gen Z the middle finger, not even doing the bare minimum. It's truly just—it's so predictable. It's so predictable. But of course after they fail uh to get elected because they fucked up so so badly who do you think they're gonna blame they're gonna blame young people they're gonna blame the left because remember it is never the democratic party who can fail you it's always voters who fail the democratic party now i do want to um go to one comment that cam said there he said and look i'm gonna keep on voting blue but it's getting less fun every time see I don't think you should say this because they don't give a shit if you're having fun when you vote for them. They just care that you vote for them. Now, I'm not saying that, you know, we should just allow Republicans to win. But what I do want the left to do is be a little bit more savvy in making threats to the Democratic Party establishment. I've been saying this consistently. So back in 2016, when the DNC was trying to sabotage Bernie Sanders, uh, I think that Bernie Sanders should have threatened to run as a third party candidate in the general election. Now, I wouldn't have expected him to do that, and I wouldn't have supported any uh, spoiler effect that would have led to Donald Trump getting elected. But still, if you kind of puff up your chest and you talk a big game, perhaps you scare them a little bit. Right. Um, And, you know, I I saw these interviews from the Iowa caucus where you had young people show up to support Bernie Sanders enthusiastically. And I remember it was either a CNN or an MSNBC anchor asking this group of young people, well, if Bernie Sanders isn't the nominee, would you still support the person who isn't? And and they're like, oh, of course. So, you know, if you're going to do that, keep it to yourself as, as much as you can. Don't show your cards until the last minute because the Democratic Party needs to acknowledge that when you say that you're going to still vote for democrats even though it's becoming less fun they they get this false sense of security right they think okay well at least they're not you know dissatisfied enough to not vote for us but in actuality most people are probably going to be so turned off that they stay home to vote there's a lot of people who I know personally, young people who are disillusioned and just don't turn out to vote. And I think that that's going to be the majority of young people. So, you know, I I think that you have to hold your cards and don't admit things like this if you're a leftist, because you want them to know you're so dissatisfied that there's a possibility you tune, tune out. That's how dissatisfied you are, even if you're not going to do it. At least don't show your cards yet but part of the problem with this and what i'm saying is that there is a substantial portion of democrats i don't know how much this is all speculation who just don't give a shit they actually want to lose at least one branch of congress because if they don't control all branches of government then the expectation to deliver is gone right currently it's really uncomfortable because democrats are sitting on their asses doing fuck all knowing that their voters are getting more pissed off and, you know, they know the second Republicans retake Congress or or retake the House at a minimum, probably at the end of the year, then they're relieved because now it's like, OK, whew, now we have an excuse. Now, you know, we can just say the Republicans won't pass any legislation. We can talk about all this wonderful legislation that we're proposing while knowing that the Republicans will never allow it to pass. And the reason why Democrats don't actually want to pass legislation is because They'll offend their donors. The reason why they don't like actually being in control, and I don't know how many actually feel this way, but this is I feel like it's gotta be a substantial number. The reason why they don't like being in control is because they're walking a fine line, right? They're trying to pretend as if they're pro worker, but everything that they can do to help people would, you know, infuriate their donors. So they're they're in this weird predicament where They pay lip service to working-class issues to an extent, and they talk about healthcare, but then when they get elected, they do fuck all. And it's just, it's a cycle that is so abusive and destructive, and, you know, until we get someone in in government, a president, who actually is trying to meaningfully address the underlying systemic issues that are fucking up our late-stage capitalist country, and that, when I say that, I mean literally capitalism itself then we're never gonna make progress. And people will say, all right, Mike, well, you know, you acknowledge that the Democratic Party has uh, fucked up, so it's time to vote third party again, right? Well, look, I voted third party in the past. I kind of, you know, mixed and matched between voting Democrat and voting third party. The problem is that the people who say you have to vote third party, they don't actually try to push through the reforms that would make third parties electorally viable. I mean, I've been consistent about this. I've been pushing for a legislation like um, HR 4000, which would actually lead to uh, proportional representation, or at least more proportional representation in ranked choice voting. And nobody wants to talk about electoral reform. If you want third parties to be viable, you have to push for electoral reform first. Otherwise, you're never going to get past these two-party systems. And I I think it's a bit of an oversimplification to say that the totality of our issues is that we just have two parties that are both the same or or largely the same, which I don't agree with, but I mean, two parties that are both economically conservative. Uh, The problem is that You know, if we get a fourth party or a fifth party and we have multiple parties, we still live in a late-stage capitalist system, and those parties are just as susceptible to corruption as the Democratic Party and Republican Party is. So you know, unless you tackle the root causes that is driving this instability, driving, you know, this commodification of every aspect of our lives, and that is capitalism, then there's going to be no change. And how do you attack capitalism? How do you try to, um, how do you break capitalism? Who the fuck knows? I I mean, I'm not saying that I have, you know, a crystal or not a crystal ball, a magic wand and and you could just fix it like that by snapping your fingers. But unless you have someone who's willing to fight to just try to deliver for the working class, you're going to be stuck in this situation. So the Democratic Party will continue to fail people, fail working class voters, uh, people of color marginalized communities. And then when they fuck up and when young people and and marginalized people point this out, Democratic Party loyalists will always point the finger and blame you when they inevitably lose. It's just a vicious cycle. And at a minimum, the best we can do is acknowledge it, but try to push for someone to get elected that actually cares. And we could start by electing folks like Jessica Cisneros and Nina Turner. I mean, them getting elected, wouldn't uh be the end all be all right no one politician is a panacea but the point is we keep fighting because when you actually give up and tune out that's when they officially are victorious that's when they win because notice that the establishment they absolutely want nothing more than for you to tune out and just check out of politics and just ignore it that's a victory to the ruling class but the fact is even if we're not successful we remain a consistent uh Pres- we maintain a consistent presence and we are a pain in their ass for as long as we possibly can tolerate it because that's the only way that uh, we can we can uh, behave when there's so much at stake. I mean, you, we just can't afford to tune out and even if um, resistance is futile and nothing seems likely to change, the point is we keep going because if we do go down, then at least we go down fighting. And I'll leave that there. So, Namiki Konst appeared on Fox News, and her appearance is now blowing up and going viral. There's a Mediaite article about this, and people are watching and reacting to it, especially because of a particular exchange that she had with a former Trump promoter. He called her young lady, and her response was was perfect. Um, Imagine just for a second that she called him young man it's unheard of so obviously there's underlying misogyny there within that comment it's condescending for him to call her young lady um and that's really what is going viral but the broader conversation that they were attempting to have and the point that namiki cons was trying to make is really really important because you know there's this conversation currently about uh, wokeism and, you know, the Democratic Party and their unpopularity. And so this whole idea that the Democratic Party is losing popularity because they're too far left and too woke, um, whereas in actuality, you know, the GOP makes this claim, yet they don't actually supplement that claim with an economic agenda themselves. They don't say, all right, well, you know, the Democratic Party, they're pushing CRT, which they're not, but they're doing, you know woke thing one, woke thing two, here's what we want to do. They don't say that. So notice, when Namiki Konts really zeroes in on that and explains the failures of the Republican Party and how all of this is a distraction, watch what happens. She gets cut off by the host. Take a look. The whole Democrats
3: once had on cultural issues is breaking. Hence, why dozens of House Democrats are jumping ship now and retiring before the midterm elections and why the party's House campaign arm warned its candidates this week that if they don't figure out how to combat the GOP's alarmingly potent culture war attacks, they will lose badly. And as of today, 30 House Democrats are either retiring or seeking a different office. Nomiki. <laughs> Well it's a redistricting
2: year and so the same things happening on the Republican side that's what happens every redistricting year. But you know there was one line there that was very powerful combating the Republicans rhetoric right their attacks this never let a good crisis go to waste when Donald Trump was handed the responsibility of of really making America the leader in combating COVID, what did he do? He was rallying against the American government and inspiring terrorist attacks on the Capitol. That's not true. So you want to talk That's about That's absolutely absolute, not true. Oh, uh, all right, I'm going to step listen, in, in there backwards. because you are
3: putting things, incendiary things, into the conversation. Uh, and I know that TW works. wants to rebut that. So quickly, and we'll, we'll come right back to you. Okay. Hold on. Uh, T.W.?
2: Yeah, yeah there's, there's no way we're going to sit here and pretend like Donald Trump was promoting terrorism, that you should we apologize to American com- the- people for saying it. That's just not true. I the reality is the reason sure, Democrats the are losing is because Joe Biden has told us over point. and okay. over that the number one problem in America is white supremacy, and it's not. That's not what's Absolutely. facing Americans. The people that are losing their jobs is not, not gonna because T.W., I'm going to go right back to Namiki
3: now. I just wanted you to, to respond on that one point.
2: Young lady, I live it. I don't have to get paid for it. Don't
3: call me young lady, sir. I may bless
2: your heart, ma'am. I'm a grown woman no, and you can come up with all the code you want but the FBI said that the number one problem in America right now is white supremacy organized white supremacy that's' As, the people who lost their job the if it's white of, supremacy of the capital, and so you know let's talk about the people who lost their jobs because Republicans are responsible for tax breaks for the wealthiest they have no interest in unionized efforts they're union busters so if we want to talk about the real issues you're making uh, all these
3: th- th- these code words to distract away from the fact that people let's are talk hurting about on the, the real issues. And Republicans yeah. Let's are, talk about the real issues. To, to so, so I, I, I want to jump back in here because the, the far left agenda in your party and of course you were a surrogate for, for Bernie Sanders. So you saw that your party picked more mainstream so they thought. That's not exactly what they're getting right now but that's what they thought. So let's just go back to the idea that now your brand so to speak is getting voted out, potentially. People are saying, no, we're done with this. We want you to focus on inflation and those bigger issues. What do you say about that?
2: Um, if you look around the country to where the people the people who are not running for office again or t- switching districts, they're pretty much in more conservative districts. So those are the centrists of the party. You know, Todd Kaminsky, a senator in New York, just said he was stepping down. Catherine Rice said she was stepping down. Those are the conservative Democrats who right. realize that working people want not, they don't want business Democrats. They want Democrats who protect unions, organized labor. And, and you know, those all those attacks against the school okay. boards right now, that's an attack against labor. Harris, let, me let, let, let me, hold on
3: one second let me just put one more thing in here uh in california we're looking at erosion of support for feinstein and pelosi pelosi is not exactly in the middle mainstream right now she's being pulled a bit to the left in the house by aoc and some of the other so-called squad members so i hear what you're saying but but that is a cobalt blue state Uh, And one in which progressive politics are very, very hot. I want to get to this. Turns out people in the Golden State, again, which is actually very blue, are souring on President Biden.
0: That was uh, a train wreck. And I feel so bad for Namiki for having to put up with that. Um, I don't know how I would have handled that, but I think that she handled it as well as she could have. That was just insanity. So the Fox host there at the end is implying that people are turned off by joe biden because he was elected as a mainstream democrat i.e a moderate democrat but he got an office and then he went far left at some point I i think that they use far left and woke interchangeably but he went a little bit too far left and now he's turning people off but even in a deep blue state like california where they are very far left and very woke he's turning them off as well but wait if this is your claim and it's true that people in California are dissatisfied with Biden and Harris, then isn't that kind of defeating your point? Because if this very far-left, woke state of California is dissatisfied with the supposedly woke, far-left president, shouldn't they, in theory, like him? Doesn't this suggest that perhaps you're full of shit when you say that Joe Biden, a right-wing Democrat, is too woke and too far-left? I mean, their are arguments. You just have to think about it for a little bit. And it's self-defeating, it's self-defeating. Biden is not far left. Perhaps his approval rating is in the toilet because he's too conservative and he isn't fighting for policies a majority of Americans want. Now, at the beginning of that clip there, they talk about a Washington Examiner article where I believe they're citing the DCCC. um, And the DCCC says that the GOP's culture war argument currently is alarmingly potent and they have to find a way to respond to that. Otherwise, they're going to lose. Um, Now, all you have to do is look to the far left and we actually know how to respond to the GOP's manufactured culture war issues. Namiki Khan said it there perfectly. You know, the GOP never lets a good crisis go to waste. They take everything and they turn it into a culture war issue because that's all that they have and it's a distraction. And Namiki was absolutely correct to point that out. I mean, look at CRT, critical race theory. Nobody even knew what this was prior to 2021, but because one savvy, GOP operative named Christopher Rufo decided to elevate this issue. Now everyone's talking about it and everyone thinks that CRT is this big thing. Meanwhile, you ask rank-and-file people what CRT is. They don't fucking know what CRT is. They have no idea what CRT is. What is that? Teaching black history? What is CRT? They don't know. So the GOP has been very effective at fear They'll take anything. Oh, look at this migrant crisis at the border every election cycle. And as soon as the election is over, you know, all of a sudden it's not a threat. So the GOP doesn't actually have any issues to appeal to normal working class voters. So the way that they get them to support them or at least not support Democrats at a minimum is to scare them. Fearmonger, right? their working class dog whistles come in the form of xenophobia see we care about you unlike the democrats because we don't want these immigrants taking your job that's the subtext of what they say you know we care about you because we don't want you know your kids to be taught about history in the united states because that means that your white kids are going to think that they're guilty of something that they're not guilty of you know so you're you're a normal person you you didn't do slavery. But all of this is is a distraction. None of it is actually going to meaningfully improve the lives of the American people. If the GOP got everything that they want with respect to the culture war, and we banned CRT in every single school across the country, we closed the borders indefinitely, the problems that plague our society will still exist. So this is nothing more than a ploy. And Namiki Konst pointed that out. But when she pointed that out, well, that's when the Fox News host cut her out. Now, before we talk about what Namiki Khan said, that guy said, uh, Joe Biden has told us over and over that the number one problem in America is white supremacy. He then says that people are losing their job. Uh, It's not because of white supremacy. So him right there, he's signaling to working class people, hey, the Democratic Party isn't serious. The Republican Party acknowledges you. So then the logical follow up is, okay, what policies in particular is the Republican Party promoting to help? working-class people. Now, that's not to say that the Democratic Party is great as well, hence why the far-left in America was pushing back against Biden in favor of someone like Bernie Sanders. But what Namiki Conster said, was perfect, and maybe you didn't hear all of it because she was cut off, but let me read it to you. So, uh, she said, let's talk about people who lost their jobs because Republicans are responsible for tax breaks for the wealthiest. They have no interest in unionized efforts. Absolutely true. They're union busters. Absolutely true. That's what these right-to-work laws are. They're anti-labor. Uh, so, if we want to talk about the real issues, you're making all these code words to distract away from the fact that people are hurting on the ground and Republicans are doing nothing to save them. Bingo. That right there is why the Mickey Cons was cut off because she just exposed the entire agenda of Fox News and the Republican Party currently. Fox News doesn't give a flying fuck about working-class people. They're not going to propose greater unionization. They're not going to support their own version of the PRO Act. So all that they do is distract you. What's that? The minimum wage hasn't increased in over a decade and we don't support that? Look at CRT. Look, at they're canceling Cat in the Hat now. Mr. Potato Head is gender neutral. Oh, my God, the M&Ms aren't sexy anymore. Oh, my God, the Super Bowl's too sexy. I mean, it's all bullshit. It's all a distraction. It's all a ruse. And the Mickey Cons just exposed that. Flawlessly, effortlessly so. She did fantastic here, given how hostile that territory was. She walked into the lines then and still, she got them to essentially uh, tacitly admit that she's correct because they wouldn't have cut her off if she wasn't making such a good point. But that is the GOP's project currently. Distract, distract, distract. Republicans don't care about working class people. They care about delivering for their donors. As corporatist as the Democratic Party is, as corrupt as they are, Republicans are exponentially more corporatist and corrupt. What underlying issues that plague our system are Republicans proposing that we address? Jack fucking shit. So going back to the uh, D Triple C's comment about the GOP, you know, and their culture war being alarmingly potent, how would you respond to that? That's the overall uh, attempt to or question that they're attempting to answer in this particular segment, and it's pretty simple. You deliver for people. You deliver for people. Let me let me tell you this i think that the gop culture war would not be as potent as it is currently and it is potent but it wouldn't be as persuasive to normal americans if democrats actually delivered there's a poll that was released that 83 percent of democrats and i believe a majority of voters overall support student debt cancellation can you imagine if biden he took you know a cannabis off schedule one He canceled student debt. He did everything in his power to fight and push through a populist agenda if he actually got Build Back Better past. The things that Fox News said, the culture war issues, the CRT issues wouldn't matter because when people feel as if you're making a concrete difference in their lives with your policies, they don't care about these other things. They're less persuaded by bullshit like Cat in the Hat and Mr. Potato Head and cancel culture. So when they look at corporate Democrats like Joe Biden and Nancy Pelosi, they can't say that Americans are dissatisfied with them because they're out-of-touch elites and they're too corporate because the same can be said for Republicans, albeit probably to a worse extent. Republicans are more out-of-touch and more elite. So what do they say instead of just telling the truth? Oh, well, Nancy Pelosi is being pulled to the left by people like AOC. Really? How so? Because AOC is trying to force her hand on a stock ban for members of Congress. That's pulling her to the left. Is that not just a bipartisan issue? I mean, there are Republicans who support it. There's a surprising number of bipartisan people. So on the one issue where AOC is actually persuasive and forcing Nancy Pelosi's hand, there's a lot of GOP support. So are they getting pulled to the left as well? See, they use Democrats being too far left in lieu of their corporatism, They don't say this about Republicans. They can't say, oh, well, these Republicans like Mitch McConnell, he is disliked by the American people because he's too far left, because that's preposterous. But they say it for Democrats because they know that their audience will believe it. But if Democrats actually got their heads out of their asses, and I'm talking about the far left Democrats they're referring to, the mainstream Democrats like Joe Biden and Nancy Pelosi, and they actually delivered, if people felt The changes that they instituted via policy, if they actually felt as if things were getting better in this country and not worse, all of these arguments wouldn't be persuasive. Want more? Visit humanistreport.com for links to our full catalog
1: of videos on YouTube, Means TV, and Facebook. You can also find audio versions of the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, iHeartRadio, and other major podcast platforms. And before you go, consider supporting the show on Patreon or through YouTube memberships. you get early access to most videos, invites to monthly live chats with Mike, and you'll be thanked by name at the start of the next episode. There are other ways to support the show. You can like, subscribe, turn on notifications, and share our content on social media. Thank you for watching.